In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And we got some classic Perspectrum stuff today. Yeah. Uh, we are going to be doing a segment about child labor laws in America mm-hmm. and how uh, they're being rolled back. Yeah, dude. Because apparently it's the fucking Industrial Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to have a conversation about homeschooling, mm-hmm. which should be interesting because there's a lot of weird stuff out there about it and weird information and it's kind of hard to get a grasp on like the entire practice as a whole dude it is a weird thing to dive into like it's kind of murky it's a little bit uh unsettling honestly yeah Yeah. i i did realize as i was thinking about our segments like they're very like children focused today which is i think really interesting it's like it's it's a little it's interesting that kids are so heavily politicized these days like yeah. it's kind of strange i mean we're taking two very specific angles at it but like you know like governor yunkin in virginia won essentially over like school choice and like parental control in schools so much of like the legislation in florida is about kids so much of the anti-trans legislation is about kids like it's 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 really interesting that they're they seem to be having a moment of like being these political pawns um and are not really being yeah. helped as a result at all yeah yeah, They're I mean, pretty it's much screwed intuitive. over. Like when it, I mean, it's it's intuitive because kids are like they're the perfect pawn. Mm-hmm. They they elicit deep emotions yeah. among almost everybody, and they don't often have the ability to speak for themselves. Yes, exactly. So you can no basically use voice. them for whatever yeah. the fuck you want. Yeah, they exactly. don't really have as much of a political voice. Totally. You know, so so they're they're super convenient to use uh, as, as pawns. pawns all the time. Yeah. Like it's I'm excited that we're going to be doing two policy deep dives today. Yeah, because me too. like me too. the news was slower this week, which means we can just talk about whatever the hell we want. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we want to talk about kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of using children as political pawns, let's talk about child labor. Well, I guess pawns in general. Not I'm here to tell pawns. you the truth about child labor laws. <laughs> They're silly and outdated. <laughs> Apparently, Republicans watched the movie Zoolander and thought that Magatu was the good guy. <laughs> that is hilarious. Except for Jesse Waters. He knows that Derelict is just homeless people and he hates those. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why are we talking about child labor? It's 2023, not 1923 or 1823. So... Like, what is going on? So basically, the background of all of this is that we have seen a significant increase in child labor, uh, like, law violations over the last couple of years. So yeah. um, child labor is covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was passed around the New Deal era. Yes, that was the last time that we significantly, at a federal level, regulated child labor. Um, and it outlaws oppressive child labor uh, with exemptions for agriculture and stuff like that. Basically, like these federal protections limit, you know, working hours. So minors on a federal level who are like 14 or 15 years old can only work up to like three hours outside of uh, of work on, on school days. And on days when school's not in session, they can work eight hours with like some some uh, longer hours for older people. Um, and then it also imposes uh, civil fines for violation of these laws. So there's a maximum civil monetary penalty of about $15,000 per child. And then states have the ability yeah. to add regulations on top of like an additional protections on top of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So yeah, even though this is like pretty low level protections, like we're, you know, this is basically just governing like amount of time you can work, how old you have to be to start working, what kinds of jobs are hazardous and oppressive. Even though like these minimal standards are kind of in place, um, we have seen a significant increase 
over the last few years in um, violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So yeah, we're talking like huge. So since 2015, we've seen a 238% increase in violations according to the Department of Labor. Now, 2015 was a low point in terms of a total uh, violations, um, but we're talking about in 2022, 3,876 um, violations of child labor laws. Yeah, and just between the years of uh, the fiscal year 2022 and 2021, there was an increase in violations by 37%. And there have been some pretty jarring examples. Yes. For those of you that study history, one of the biggest uh, industries that really needed to be regulated not just because of child labor, just because of conditions in general, was the meatpacking industry. And there was an investigation into the Packers Sanitation Services Incorporated uh, by the uh, Department of Labor, and they found that at least 102 children between the ages of 13 and 17 were working yeah. in hazardous occupations and had them working uh, with with the meatpacking industry, the meatpacking plants, and they had them working overnight shifts at mm -hmm. 13 different meatpacking facilities in eight states across the country. Yeah. All right. 13 to 17-year-olds. Mm -hmm. There was another investigation into uh, the, the Hyundai-Kia supply chain in Alabama uh, that also found that they were employing people as young as 14 in their mm -hmm. factories. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy. And so typically we would think of the kinds of jobs being done by miners in like the 21st century as like working in fast food restaurants or in grocery stores yeah. or or things like that. And yeah, some there, ice cream place. Yeah, exactly. And there are violations of of child labor laws going on in these facilities. So we're talking about Yeah working too late into the night and these limitations are often at the state level so like working too late which is hazardous because if you're tired and driving home uh you know children or teenagers are already an increased risk of like car accidents and fatalities and things like that um there there have been you know violations of them like working too many hours for example but at the same time even though like these are you know, perhaps less severe cases, to Nathan's point, we're also seeing an increase in high-risk jobs and injuries and violations in these, like, industries where children just aren't allowed to be working in the first place. And adolescents yeah. are almost twice as likely as adults to get injured at work, which makes these instances, like, particularly heinous violations that companies are just willing to take the risk on even though it costs them yeah. 15,000 bucks per per child violation. Yeah. So this is this has been a major problem. Mm -hmm. All right. The going over the established child labor laws and violating the established rights has led to multiple investigations that have been occurring. Mm -hmm. Luckily, state level Republicans have the solution. Loosen the laws. <laughs> yeah, having too many fair like child labor law violations. Well, that's okay. We'll just <laughs> we'll just uh, reduce the laws and we'll reduce just, the protections. Yeah, that's that's how you prevent it. That's Perfect. how you prevent it. And not only that, like not only loosening the laws so that the standards that are set in place are like are lessened. In many cases, it's straight up shielding industries yes. from liability yeah. if they hire somebody. Who is underage. Yeah. Or even if they get injured. Yeah, or even if they get injured. Making it easier to lie for kids to lie about their age mm -hmm. or for parents to lie about their kids' age and then shielding them from protections if they happen to hire somebody who is not of the right age to work. Mm -hmm. That's important to note because when you see the numbers of like, oh, uh, ages as low as 16 can do this terrible job or as low as 14 can do this terrible job, you also have to keep in mind that even those standards that these laws are set are not necessarily the only age mm -hmm. that will be affected by these laws. Yeah. Because totally. they're also built into these laws are making it easier for people, for, for employers, for parents to violate the very laws 
minimal amount of protections that these laws propose in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so over the last two years, according to a report from the Economic Policy Institute, at least 14 states have enacted or proposed laws to roll back protections for children uh, in work scenarios, so in, in rolling back child labor protections. And again, like most typically, these are extending hours, lifting, and but they're also like lifting restrictions on hazardous work. Um, or like lowering the age at which uh, kids can work in restaurants that like serve alcohol. Um, yeah. Now, I will say like some of these states, at least currently, have legislatures that are controlled by Democrats. So I would say like while the vast majority of these states are have legislatures controlled by Republicans, there's definitely a mix here because the justification is um, largely to address the quote-unquote labor shortage that we're facing specifically for these the kinds of jobs that uh children like most often do which is again the least desirable often the least desirable lowest paid work that's what kids end up doing and i just like to point out when you spend some time thinking about the implications of that yeah you realize just how cartoonishly fucking evil that is. Yes. Because the reason why there is a labor shortage is because during the pandemic, people got a taste of what, like, not entirely centering themselves around work mm-hmm. might look like. And that made it so that when they were coming back to work, businesses had to be more competitive in terms of trying to uh, appeal to multiple different workers. Mm -hmm. They had to increase their pay. They had to have better standards. They had to have better benefits, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And now, in in order to try to offshoot that, in order to try to offshoot the few benefits of the pandemic, the very few benefits of the pandemic, the solution is to try to loosen child labor laws. Yes, yeah. Like, what the actual fuck? Totally. Yeah. You don't want to make standards better. You don't want to make pay better. You don't want to make conditions better. So instead, throw children at the problem. Yeah, Are seriously. you fucking kidding me? Yep. And not only not only that, not only is it let's employ children to do the jobs that adults won't do, let's ask the question, what kinds of kids end up in these jobs? Yeah. They're the exact same kinds of kid like kids from a socioeconomic and like background perspective as the adults that would end up in these jobs people with no other options so for yeah. example in the in the meat packers uh example that you, that you mentioned Nathan many of the children working in these facilities were unaccompanied minors who had immigrated to the United States and were placed with sponsors while their asylum claims were being processed so these are people that are trying to like send money home to their families or they are um, you know, living in situations that maybe aren't great and they need to make money to like, or that like, or they're being taken advantage of. And so with the influx of unaccompanied minors through our um, health and human services system, many of the kids that are flowing into these jobs are some of these least well-off folks and these unaccompanied minors, which is again, it sounds like, which is again, like just, like ridiculously usury to try to take advantage of these people in with no other options in order to reduce the cost of labor in sometimes hazardous facilities. Yeah. And to your point, like, yeah, one of the more heinous laws is actually coming out of Iowa, which is (laughs) allowing kids as young as 14 to work in industrial laundries. Um, and with approval from a state agency, allows the kids to work, the 16-year-olds or older, to work in roofing, excavation, demolition, the oper- operation of power-driven machinery, and other like dangerous industries and occupations. Remember, adolescents are twice as likely to get injured on the job as adults yeah. in all of these really dangerous uh, jobs. And that bill is one of those examples of tr- basically a bill that is written to make it easy to like to violate the bill yes, um, because it also includes removing rules that prevent parents from lying about their kid's age in order mm-hmm. to procure, procure employment. Yep. Um, it eliminates the, uh, 
the labor commissioners, and this is a this is according to a breakdown from the Economic Policy Institute, it eliminates the labor commissioner's authority to require work permits mm. for children in some occupations, yeah. which again, the reason why they have to get those work permits is to make sure that they satisfy the mm-hmm. standards that are put in place in the first place. Yeah. And to be able to track them so so that you can actually know yeah. which industries are employing employing kids so you can pay attention. Arkansas is doing a similar thing where they're rolling back the requirement to have work permits, which is all it does. It's literally a one-page thing. You fill out your information. Like, all it does is create a paper trail so you can more easily track and protect people from violations. So it's just making it easier to violate the law. Yeah. And it provides employer immunity from legal claims arising from industry, illness, or death of a child. Yes, seriously. Minnesota has put in place a similar law to that. Reed, Reed Mackey, who's the director of uh, child labor advocacy at the National Consumers League and the coordinator of child labor of the Child Labor Coalition, um, when talking about this particular particular aspect of these laws, put it really well. He said, "It's as if they know that kids are going to get hurt." Yeah, because they and do. They want to make sure that they're protecting the businesses. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's just mind blowing mustache twirling yeah. evil yes um and one of one of the things that i that i also think is really interesting about this is that uh many states are also approving sub-minimum wages for minors mm-hmm. yes. so for example uh in nebraska um voters recently approved a uh, a ballot measure to increase the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour by 2026 which mm-hmm. good great yeah. However, the way that that is going to work for uh, for minors, so so basically, the bill proposes that fourteen to seventeen year olds would be paid nine dollars, which would gradually increase to ten dollars hmm. by twenty twenty six. Yep. So basically, five dollars less than the than the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, one state senator. Uh, Tom Bryce, I believe that's how you say his name, whatever. Uh, he defended it by saying, quote, we shouldn't be making it harder for employers to hire young folks. Yes. Yes, we fucking should. <laughs> yes. I, I think yes, we fucking should. That is, and, and, and I, yeah. the reason why I find that so telling is because we hear time and time again, an argument against raising the minimum wage mm-hmm. is, oh, well, the purpose of the minimum wage was never to pay a living wage. Mm-hmm. It was to have a certain amount of money for like high schoolers and teenagers mm-hmm. for their first job. That's what the minimum wage is for, which is bullshit. That's mm-hmm. a bullshit argument because when FDR originally created the minimum wage as part of his New Deal programs, he specifically said the purpose of this minimum wage yeah. is to make sure people are making a living wage. He said... No business that rely that that relies on the paying of less than a living wage in order to operate deserves to exist. So that argument is bullshit to begin with. Mm-hmm. And right here, they're telling you that it's bullshit because they're even putting another minimum wage, a sub-minimum wage, for teenagers. Yes. Which that's the whole reason why they've been arguing against raising it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, we'll raise the minimum wage, but we'll we'll get around it by reducing protections for, for child labor, allowing children to flood the labor market more and uh and then suppress yeah. wages the original point of the minimum wage wasn't to fucking uh give a certain amount of money for for mm-hmm. uh for high schoolers and and for teenagers yeah. because we're giving them a different minimum wage yes yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i think i think it's such a strange argument like the idea that teenagers so i get i get maybe the idea that some like teenagers are maybe not going to be as good at the jobs and do as good of a job as an adult so like maybe that's the argument for trying to pay them less but you just you don't hire those people like those are not people you want working for you yeah you have to you know like if they're going to be bad at their job don't hire them like that's not actually you know what we're going for and the thing about uh teenagers especially like kids in school is that they're either having a job for like mainly one of two reasons. One, they need money to help support their family, which is an argument that 
conservatives will sometimes make that like we have to, you know, maybe we have to reduce uh, protections for school age kids so that they can bring home money to their family. And we'll get to great, you know, why Give them a living wage though. That's similarly cartoonishly evil, but exactly. That means that they even that they need a living wage even more because they yeah. shouldn't be spending all their time working. So having a higher wage per hour is actually more important for them. The other another reason why, you know, kids and teenagers will get jobs is, you know, have a little money, have a little extra spending money, you know, be able to, you know, get job experience, all of the stuff that conservatives are talking about all the time that young people need to get work ethic and start their jobs and all that stuff. But the problem is that especially as a teenager, time that you spend at a job can have a pretty big opportunity cost, right? You like you're it's it's time that you might not be spending, you know, studying for the SATs or like doing extracurriculars that can yeah. good, look good on college applications. Like there can be significant opportunity costs to going and working, which means that we should pay a higher amount, at least minimum wage, because these are these are these are kids that should be spending their time doing other things. And so the time they spend working is time that we should compensate them for fairly. Like yeah. And and the other thing the other thing about that argument. So so I saw a few people like talking about like oh kids just don't want to work anymore and that's why we need to reduce protections for child labor. Like like uh there was one industry lobbyist I was reading about. School. Yeah, that attempted to justify changes by saying there was a, there's been a decline in the labor force participation rate among 16 to 24 year olds over the last two decades. Yeah. That's not something that gets solved by reducing protections for kids that are in the labor force. Yeah. Right? Like, like is if the claim is that that's a problem on the jobs availability side, like we just don't have enough jobs available for kids, then that, then like, why are you, then that's like not, that's a bad claim. We don't want those kids to do those jobs. But if the claim is that kids should be getting jobs more then. All you're doing by extending working hours for kids or allowing them to work later is enabling people that are in the workforce to have harder, more strenuous, like like more problematic jobs. It's yeah. not helping. Yeah, yeah, and 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 on top of all that, during those years, one of the reasons why you see a large unemployment rate is because like youth are using that time to invest in their future, to invest exactly. in a more long-term yes. career, to finish yes. school, to go through college or to mm. go to graduate school. That's why they're not working at jobs. They're trying to invest in their future. Now, to mm -hmm. be clear, I'm not saying that you can't invest in your future by having a job during those yeah. times. I mean, Michael, you, you, you had a job when, when you were, uh, absolutely. You know, when, I, when, when you were a teenager. Yeah. Yeah, as I've gone through all of these laws and been reading about this, I think that's a really, I'm, I think it's an interesting point. I got a job as soon as I was able to get one. As soon as someone would hire me, I wanted a job. And I wanted it because I liked the idea of having a job. I liked the idea of having some extra money. Um, I thought it would be an exciting and cool experience. And it totally was all of those things. Yeah. And I didn't work at a place that violated the labor standards in my state. <laughs> yeah. And and I did find it beneficial for me, for sure. And none of that stuff is off the table when you have basic protections for kids. But my yeah. job at a restaurant is not the job we're talking about. And that's like yeah. that's the two-faced like like straw man side of the argument is that the people that are passing this legislation are pretending like, oh, well, we just we just don't have jobs available for youngsters and and the kids you know they're spending too much time on their phones literally one one spokesperson for the Ohio Restaurant Association testifying on behalf of Ohio's like reduction of protections for kids um literally cited that oh this will reduce like screen time and you know kids need an opportunity to work it's important and all of that stuff can be true while not putting kids in the factory line or cleaning dangerous equipment like those just aren't the jobs that kids are supposed to be doing. And those are the jobs that are being added to like the list of options for, for kids. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I truly do believe 
that having a job as a teenager mm-hmm. can be an extremely re- rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. I never had like in a I didn't have an official job as a teenager, but like when I was uh, when I was really young, actually, when I was seven years old, I started this this dog business mm-hmm. um, where like friends of ours would pay me to sure. take care of their dogs while they were on vacation. Yeah, and you know, I it it was I mean it was a business as a kid, mm-hmm. so like it, you know. I wasn't making a ton of money doing it, but mm-hmm. like for me, I was making a lot of money because I was seven. Yeah. Um, and that was super fulfilling. Like I mm-hmm. loved being able to 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 do something, to to work and to get paid for it. Like mm-hmm. that's that can be a very rewarding experience. And the more that these these laws strip away protections, making it easy for what should be a rewarding experience, mm-hmm. a rewarding part of growing up to be an exploitive experience. Yes. Yeah. Like the more you undermine your entire arguments surrounding the entire, like s- surrounding the, like your justifications for these laws in the first place. Yes. Cause the justifications that we keep seeing is, well, you know, it's, it's, it's good for them to w- learn a, a good work ethic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes then make sure they have a good experience. Yeah. All right? It's not that difficult. No, I mean, we have to is, break their is, souls early, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is one of those cases where right now there is so much anger in this country mm-hmm. about our economic system. There is so much anger towards capitalism. And, you know, I'm a capitalist, all right, I still consider myself a capitalist, but there is a lot of justified anger against capitalism right now. Mm-hmm. Anger against exploitation, anger against profit-based healthcare, anger against paying less than a living wage, anger against income inequality. And we're at the point where capitalism really really needs to justify its own existence. <laughs> and loosening child labor laws <laughs> ain't going to do that. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because high anxiety, you win. <laughs> that sounds like a tip for bad. I, I think we, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> shouldn't give in. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a reference to a, a, a Mel Brooks movie. It was oh, a song yeah. that he sang. I've seen, I've seen a, High Anxiety. You've seen High Anxiety? Yeah, of course. Mel Brooks. I've seen, I think I've seen all Mel I mean, Brooks yeah. movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, I forgot who I was talking to for a second. <laughs> um, and you know what? Mel Brooks, you know what he does? What? He makes the world a better place. Hmm. Have you watched his movies recently? <laughs> I Has he made any movies recently? No, not any recent movies. His old movies recently. <laughs> I watched Blazing Saddles as an adult. Boy, <laughs> that's an experience. Well, well, I mean, considering when it was made, it was progressive at the time. <laughs> I don't think saying the N-word that many times can be progressive. Well, Even if you do it ironically. <laughs> I, well, the bad guys were the ones that were saying Very it, true. Very you know? true. So at least Very at true. least he was trying to be like, hey, these, you know, fuck these guys. And I and Gene Wilder's speech about like, you, you know mm-hmm. how we're always talking about how there's always that argument of, well, you know, these you know these people, like they're they're simple country folk. Mm-hmm. You can't expect them to, you know, to to not be racist. And then he just kind of subverts that trope by like, yeah, you know, morons. Yeah, <laughs> like I always I, I always love that whole thing. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Nathan is fine with white people saying the n word. No, he is not. He is. He's. Nathan is. No, they're bad guys if they say it. <laughs> they're bad guys if they say it. You Nathan got, is got not me. fine with that. Trapped. Nathan is not fine with, with white people saying the If N-word. only we could edit this, but we're not going to. Maybe we should. <laughs> so tips for good. Okay, tips for good. Our tip for good today is to be proactive in your trans inclusivity. Basically, we have, you know, generally, if you're not, you know, transphobe or homophobe, you're like probably aware of ways that you can be inclusive of the trans folks trans folks in your life. But one thing that it's it can be easy to overlook if you're not trans or not part of the community uh, or if you're not like particularly a, a, an active ally is that signaling that acceptance, that inclusivity proactively is very very valuable. So 
doing things like when you introduce yourself, introducing yourself along with your pronouns to signal that you are open to and accepting of people with, uh, you know, non-cis, you know, gender identity. Um, things yeah. like asking other people's pronouns. Things like, yeah, t- so taking these measures that sometimes are reactive and turning them into a practice that can proactively signal that you're a safe person to interact with. Yeah, yeah. Like, I I hadn't really thought much of it uh, in my, in my own class for a long time. Um, and then one of my, one of my trans friends who is, who is a, a teacher, um, I, I had a conversation with them and, you know, they heavily encouraged it. And the, f- the first year that I did it, there were several people in my class that, you know, used pronouns that I wouldn't have automatically guessed. Mm-hmm. And, and, th- and that's the interesting thing about pronouns. Like, 99% of the time, people are probably going to use the pronouns that you assume they're going to use. But like in that 1% of the time when they don't, like it means a lot to people. It means a lot to people mm-hmm. to signal that. And in fact, like the year that I started doing that, I like, hell, I got, I got comments on my, uh, on my teacher evaluations that straight up said, you know, at the beginning of the year, he, he asked everybody to share their pronouns and that made me feel safe in his class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as a teacher, like that's, that's really important to me because like people need to be focused on learning in the class. They mm-hmm. shouldn't be focused on, you know, potentially not being safe in who they are. Yeah, totally. Um, but just, but in general, like it is good to be able to have people feel safe around you mm-hmm. and, you know, not, not, and, and this isn't just like some bleeding heart shit. Like this is like, this isn't bleeding heart liberal shit. This is like, there is a advantage to being around multiple people into learning who multiple people are. Yeah. And, you know, see, everybody has something to offer you. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody has a unique perspective that is different from your own in some way, whether it's based on what they believe, whether it's based on uh, how they grew up, whether it's based on how they view themselves. Like, mm-hmm. everybody has something interesting, a new perspective that can potentially enrich your view of the world. Mm-hmm. And if they feel safe talking to you, then they're more likely to share that perspective with you and potentially enrich your own view of the world. That is a good thing. Like yeah. diversity isn't a good thing just because like, you know, we we want to make everything like a Disney movie or some shit. Mm-hmm. Like it's a good thing because you learn more by interacting with more people. And sure. if you have no interest in interacting with people other than those that fall outside who you are. Mm-hmm then fine, ignore this segment. But for the rest of you, <laughs> yeah. differences do matter when it comes to communication. Mm-hmm. And if you respect those differences, you're more likely to have better communication. Totally. And it's also just a great example to set for the cis people around you to remind them to be inclusive and all that stuff. Ultimately, it's hard to overlook the example of like the past several years of incre- the increasing trend of like self-reported trans identity because even conservatives will be like oh every i keep seeing people more and more people coming out as trans it's like an epidemic or whatever and it's like no it's more people are comfortable and safe and have and have received the signal that they will be accepted as a trans person and therefore are okay identifying as it as one so it is very important and very powerful to be proactively inclusive and honestly, it's even valuable in the cases that they always bring up of, oh, this person's just going through a, a phase, like they're going to grow. Like, even in the cases in which somebody might be experimenting with different pronouns or whatever, like even in cases like that, giving them the opportunity to explore that and then decide, you know, oh, well, okay, I guess that's not for me. Like, that's there's still value in that. Mm-hmm. Like, there's still value in respecting it, even if it does end up even if it does end up being something that they, you know, that they decide is not them. Yeah. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we are talking about homeschooling. This is a subject that I know almost nothing about. And Nathan is really an expert on. <laughs> oh shit. That's backwards. Sorry. Uh, yeah, that's... Sorry. Homeschool moment. Yeah. This uh... is, this is... <laughs> yeah. This is a, this is something that Nathan knows nothing about. Uh, and Michael is much more of an expert in like, cause I have very limited exposure to people who are homeschooled. I, mm-hmm. 
But three people in my life that I'm really close to were homeschooled. Uh, you, uh, Taylor, your brother, and uh, my friend Josh, who has been on the pod before. Mm-hmm. Um, and the three of you are three of the most brilliant people that I know. Oh, buddy. So honestly, I, I kind of, like, I always kind of had a bit of a bias for homeschooling mm-hmm. because, like, the three people that I know that are homeschooled are, like, three of the smartest people I know. Yeah. But then, of course, there's also, you know, there's also a lot out there about the potential downsides regarding, uh, you know, the it being a mechanism of indoctrination. So, like, I I came at this with a relatively blank slate. Like, I, yeah. I've, like, I have anecdotal experience that tells me it's good. I have, like, you know, random people that I, that I, uh, that I know who have gone on rants about why it's so bad. Mm-hmm. So I, I, going into this, I, I really wasn't sure what to believe or what I was going to find. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think your experience echoes my own anecdotal experience of interacting with the people around me. What I, what I notice in interacting with non-homeschool folks that have find out that I was homeschooled, and, and to be clear, I was homeschooled primarily like through like middle school age, like eighth grade, um, and then I was homeschooled and then also attended a, a local community college at the same time throughout my high school years. And so even in that sense, like I'm probably outside of the norm of your average homeschooler, partially because I didn't, you know, exclusively homeschool all the way through graduation, uh, like or all the way through the high school years, but also because um, I attended community college when I was 14, uh, which, you know, made yeah, it's not that common. Um, <laughs> but um, you're special. <laughs> well, hey, I, I didn't I, I didn't do that well my first year. But 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 the, but the point is like the I think a lot of people only have a very simplistic view of what homeschooling is and how it works and and the kinds of people that are homeschooled and get and and the kinds of people that come out of homeschooling. And generally it's informed by like, you know, just general assumptions or, you know, stereotypes. Or it's informed by the individual homeschoolers in their lives. Or most common, it's homes- it's informed by whatever the most ev- like mentally available example is that they have. So yeah. there are a number of examples of like homeschoolers that are out of this world intelligent or amazing at like yeah. a specific subject. And so if those are the people that an individual is aware of, those are their example of, of homeschoolers. Or there's plenty of examples of people of homeschoolers that people know individually that aren't successful or yeah. really aren't well educated. And if that's the if that's the example, then that's what people go with. And so there's this really big problem in homeschooling in general, and we can get into this a little bit, but it starts with the fact that people just generally don't know very much about it. Yeah. And then it's exacerbated by the fact that that is kept that way intentionally and the subject is understudied or studied in a biased way or there's natural bias built into the people that are homeschooling um, which prevents really thoughtful analysis and informed results from, from really being out there. So it's actually a very difficult subject to get kind of large informed social science about which means that like those just interpersonal interactions become all the more salient because people don't have good ways to ground them in facts. Yeah. And I think that there are definitely a lot of ways in which I think homeschooling, if done right, can be extremely beneficial. I mean, obviously, I think that your parents through homeschooling probably did a better job of teaching you critical thinking than my public school did. I think I I had maybe one teacher that was really adamant and big about teaching critical thinking as like a core component of his class. Yeah. Um, and that's probably it. Like most of the critical thinking that I learned, I, I learned from my own parents mm-hmm. who were also brilliant people. Um, so I do think that if there is a heavy emphasis on teaching critical thinking, yeah. you know, in, in, in a homeschool environment, then I think it can absolutely be successful. Now, yeah. that being said, I also think that is an indictment on 
the public school system. And that's that's also an argument saying that they need to be better about teaching mm-hmm. uh, critical thinking um, throughout uh, th- throughout grade school. Yeah. But at the same time, your example of like me being good at critical thinking as a result of being homeschooled is anathema to what the majority of homeschoolers would experience and what the data actually yeah. kind of supports. That's why I worded that phrase as it yes. can be beneficial. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And ultimately that's a question of like the quality of in- instruction perhaps, or the, a question yeah. of like the, phil- like the educational philosophy. Um, so before we, uh, we're already pretty deep into it, but let's establish some basics about like what about homeschooling in general. So homeschooling is when rather than attending a public or private institution, a kid is educated in their home. This is most often done by the parent, but can also be administered by uh, collections of homeschoolers, uh, most typically called a co-op. And this, the structure of the education and curriculum can vary widely because as we'll get into probably, there's almost no uh, real regulation or requirements set on homeschoolers, and we can talk through that. But basically, the the structure can go from no structure at all, so entirely child, like curiosity-driven learning, which I've seen work well, to highly structured uh, learning environments where, you know, like my wife's, my wife, for example, had a co-op that was structured like a school. They would go to class. They had homework. Um, they had teachers, often parents who were experts in their subject matters. So it can go. It can. It can form a, a wide variety of um, of instances. Currently, about three percent of the U.S. population uh, of students is uh, is homeschooled, which is about two million kids. That's been pretty steady throughout. Um, the you know the 2000s with the exception of during covid when a bunch of people have homeschooled and there's still been uh those numbers have still been somewhat elevated since the pandemic generally speaking uh you are more likely to be if you're homeschooled you're more likely to be white and the lowest rates of homeschooling is among black and asian families it's most common in the south and the west and least common in the northeast um and it is most common for people to have at least one parent not in the workforce, so staying at home to to go through this. And it is also more common among poor and nearly poor families rather than non-poor families, which is really interesting considering the time and financial burden required to homeschool a kid. That always seemed counterintuitive to me. Like if you needed money, why not send your kids to public school, which is free? There are lots of reasons why people homeschool. Um, I think most often like we believe that people are doing it for religious regions, and that is the most frequent reason. Um, for example, according to uh, the National uh, Center for Educational Statistics, they surveyed a bunch of homeschooling families, and the number two reason for homeschooling, with 75% of respondents citing this reason, is a desire to provide moral instruction. This is intentionally an environment where the parents can have outsized control over the educational experience of their kids. And there's definitely a lot of concerns there. Yes. Like, because one issue is, of course, the fact that, like, I, I, I obviously, parents want to try to teach their moral values to their kids. Mm-hmm. Like, they want their kids to share their moral values. But you also have to recognize that kids are not just an extension of you. Kids are their own people. And they do yes. need, like, yeah. they do need to grow by themselves. They do mm-hmm. need to develop their own identity, their own sense of self. Um, And ultimately, they are going to develop their own moral code. And maybe that will match yours. Maybe it won't. And, you know, what Mm -hmm. I would say is that if you think that you have a logical and well thought out Mm -hmm. and well justified moral code, then it should be able to stand up to scrutiny. Sure. And if it can't stand (laughs) up to scrutiny, thus to the point where you want to prevent your kid from even seeing from even being exposed to other potentially, uh, you know, p- potentially mm-hmm. different viewpoints, then that's a much bigger indictment on your like your lack of faith in your own logic sure. <laughs> than it is on the values of other people. Yeah, but notice that even that indictment is dependent on a belief in enlightenment, critical thinking, enlightenment reason, and uh, the value of tolerance. And these are not things that are necessarily present in 
especially extreme religious communities where homeschooling is so much more common. So, yes, but they're but they're wrong. Though. But they're wrong. They're wrong about that. That is true. That is that is for sure true. So one thing I did want to mention. One thing I did want to say, like, is that homeschool the homeschool experience can encompass as wide a variety, if not wider, of experiences than like the public school experience in terms of education outcomes, quality, like quality of life. Like these are, it's it, it is an incredibly diverse experience. Ultimately, whether something is good or bad or not is like a, a result of their outcomes, but also a result of, you know, the outcomes for like the worst off people. It's not just about yeah. whether on average homeschooling generates people that have good test scores, but it also matters whether we are accounting for the worst kinds of cases. So yes. my experience was really positive. I, I loved homeschooling, especially through like eighth grade. I don't think I would have wanted to do it through my high school years. Um, but I really liked that early experience. It provided a lot of educational flexibility, emphasis on curiosity, a lot of self-driven learning. My wife had a great experience being homeschooled as well. Uh, like one of my former bosses has homeschooled all of his kids. He has a bunch of kids. Um, and and his, his wife like leads the homeschooling. But like their eldest kid is so freaking smart. Like it's crazy. He's, he was reading Plato in Latin when I knew him, when he was nine years old, holy shit! <laughs> and I've met I've met homeschool kids that are like one of the benefits of homeschooling is is the increased flexibility, which yeah. means that you can like that like if you have a kid who is a genius in a specific field, they can focus on that field. Like I've I've yeah. seen fourteen year old, fifteen year old composers and musicians who are out of this world and specifically can dedicate the time to their craft because they're homeschooled. Often young actors are homeschooled as well, like Justin Bieber, uh, Emma Watson. They're homeschooled because it's really hard to have you know a job and go to public school at the same time. Yeah, well, and and also another thing that I think that made your experience a really positive experience that might not necessarily match up with other experiences is mm -hmm. is that one of the disadvantages that it's often cited about homeschooling is lack of extracurricular activities and your, yeah. your parents, you know, made sure that you could be involved in that. You know, you were, uh, totally. I know you and I played soccer together. Uh, we were in theater together. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was like, it was outside of an official school, but you were still involved in other events and you were still meeting other kids that yeah, were totally. outside of, you know, your, your, your group. And, and I think that that that's also very valuable and very important. Yeah. But of course that doesn't, always happen like yes. when it comes to homeschooling and another really important thing to to go off michael's point about how like we can look at some studies that say that on average homeschooled students uh perform better in college or perform better on standardized tests than mm -hmm. uh than public public school people which you know there's there is some evidence to suggest that 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 can sometimes happen. In fact, there was a there was even a study that suggested that uh, home educated people typically score um, fifteen to twenty five percentile points above um, public school students on standardized tests. That's that's mm -hmm. awesome. Like that's that yeah. that's great. But at the same time, you also have to make sure that you are accounting for some of the potentially worst cases. Yes. Yeah. And preventing those worst cases and understanding why they happen. And in many cases, why they happen is because of the lack of regulation. So one of the things that we really need to be keeping in mind is the fact that um, if you are a student going to a public school, you are regularly coming into contact with mandatory reporters of child abuse. Yes. Meaning that if you are demonstrating some signs of child abuse, like, you know, you randomly show up with a black eye or, you know, you're, there are bruises around you or, or mm -hmm. anything like that, you are around teachers who are mandatory reporters. Mm -hmm. And they have to say if they're seeing that. They have to say that. And that can potentially rescue you from an abusive household. Yeah. Um, there was a study in uh, 2014 that showed that 47% uh, of maltreated children had been in school but were now allegedly homeschooled. Mm -hmm. uh, and then another one um, in Connecticut in, 2000, uh, in 2018 showing that 33% of students withdrawn from school to homeschool in, uh, to, to homeschool and families were in families that had uh, reports 
to child services. Yep. It does leave potential vulnerabilities with regard to abuse. And unfortunately, it can also make it so that if abuse does occur, it it occurs with impunity. Yeah. I think I think that's a great example. And I think so there's there's one like side of the argument that is about the people that homeschool. And and it is that like there's a large subset of highly conservative homeschoolers that openly promote and advocate what many people would consider child abuse and is rightly considered child abuse, like extreme disciplinary procedures for kids uh, that include yeah. like spanking in during infancy, yeah. uh, like physical and emotional punishments, how to inflict uh, discipline without leaving marks. Like these are things that are promoted in some of these communities. So there's that side of it. But that's not really the point, right? The real weakness of homeschooling, because we've talked about how good outcomes can be because they do run the gambit. The real weakness is that there aren't any controls, is that you can have a parent whose interest is to turn their, is to take their genius child and develop their genius. But you can also have a parent who's only interested in avoiding detection by child protective services. And there's no way to tell the difference. And there's no protections for that kid. And there's no even requirement that the kids be educated, right? Like in many states, in some states you are required to test, right, for your kids. But even states that require you to test, some allow religious exemptions from testing. I knew a child, a family, uh, who had you know, proactively done a good job educating their older kids who went to school and all these things and had pretty much stopped educating their kids by the time they got to the younger ones. And so they had like a seven-year-old who knew nothing about how to read. It was not even close. Mm. And like they under religious exemption, there was no documentation that allowed the state to know that this child was undergoing educational neglect. And I think that's such a big part of this story is that it's actually not about whether homeschooling is good or bad. It's about yeah. we are systematically and intentionally and the result of homeschooling advocacy and the homeschooling anti-government homeschooling movement, we are systematically removing all of our, all of our tools for protecting kids from the worst downsides of what life can look like in a family. Yeah. In fact, I, I almost think that there's like there's a theme to both of our segments, not just because they're both about children, mm -hmm. but because I think that ultimately my conclusion about homeschooling after looking at some research is kind of similar to my conclusion about child labor, mm -hmm. which is that it's not inherently a bad thing. No. Yeah. Like, and it absolutely can be a positive experience mm -hmm. for a child. Like, I think that it absolutely can be an ex a positive experience for a child to work but you do have to have systems in place to prevent those worst cases so that it is a positive experience. And yes. same with homeschooling. I, I yeah. want to make it very clear. I don't think that there should be a ban on homeschooling. I, I absolutely yeah, I don't agree. think that. Uh, I, I think that homeschooling can be a great thing. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's not something I'm planning on doing with my kid, but I think that homeschooling can absolutely be a good thing, and I want it to be. I want yeah. it to be a positive experience for the parents, for the kids, for mm -hmm. for all those involved. I want it to be something that is that is good. Like I, there are children in my life that uh, are are that are going to be homeschooled, mm -hmm. and you know I I want them to have the best possible opportunity. So yeah. th the point of this segment is to say that there are some unfortunate loopholes yeah. in legislation regarding homeschooling and mm -hmm. and regulation regarding homeschooling that allows for instances yeah. of abuse yeah. that allows for instances of basically indoctrination mm -hmm. and if we want to save this system if we want to make this a good system we have to spend some more time passing laws, passing legislation yes. yeah. that make it the best possible experience, yes. that, that give it the best possible standards yeah. for for the, the best possible outcomes for the kids that are involved with it. Yeah, I totally agree. 
I think, and I think, unfortunately, homeschooling has been the victim, as a practice, has been the victim of its own advocacy. Yeah. It has been the victim of intentional bad actors whose who's yeah. only goal is to ensure the tyrannical control of uh, parents largely to serve, uh, you know, a religious purpose. So this yeah. is, there's been a long history of homeschool advocacy and deregulation, uh, which has led basically all, like, so all states allow it. Almost no states have any significant regulation to protect kids or make sure that it's working. Um, yeah. And at the same time, that like the study that you mentioned, Nathan, like it's really hard to find consistent, reliable data on the subject because... Yeah the studies that are done are most often coordinated and funded by advocacy organizations who are intentionally using methodologies that will skew their results. And even yeah. when they're not, one big problem about observing, and this is not exclusive to homeschooling, but it is common with all, like many like counterculture movements, is one of the big problems about measuring this movement is their lack of interest in participation. One of the one of the main drivers of homeschooling is taking people out of many of the avenues by which we might normally measure them. Um, yeah. And so there's a systematic under measurement of people in these worst case scenarios. We literally can't yeah. even measure kids that, that are abused at home and, and don't have like and have religious exemption. They're just basically ghosts to the state. Um, yeah. And so there's, and so often those studies are on a biased sample of the most successful cases of students who are homeschooled, go through college, do well. And though that's the sample that we're, that we're measuring because for public school kids, we know all of the kids, we know they're there, we know their test scores and we can see them. We can see all of them for a good baseline and see how they come out. But for homeschool kids, we have a biased sample. Yeah. And so it makes measuring this really hard, which makes advocating for it in a way that isn't zealous and purely based on deregulation really difficult. It's hard to make a data-informed case that homeschooling works um, in a way that's intellectually honest, just, as, just in the same way that it's hard to make an informed data-backed case that it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I support parent rights yeah and i support parent choice but when we're talking about this topic this mm -hmm. subject what's more important than parents rights are the rights of the kids and now it's time for one of our favorite segments the d-bag award so nathan what the heck is a d-bag award well, Michael, I'm glad you asked. The, uh, the D-Bag Award, which of course is short for Dershowitz Bag, is an award that we like to give out to people that make hilariously self-defeating arguments that are the equivalent of running into a barn and just stepping on a rake and <laughs> it just bashing you in the head, which by the way, I've done that. It really fucking hurts. Yeah, I've done that too. You never, yeah. it, it, it's remarkable how fast a rake can just yeah. come up and hit you in the face. Like there's like, some, there's some, you know, sound barrier breaking shit going on there. Yeah. Like you see it happen in cartoons and you're like, Oh, that's <laughs> funny. And then it happens to you and you're like, Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, um, and of course, the Dershowitz Bag Award is named after uh, Alan Dershowitz for that fateful time that he stood in front of Congress and said that Donald Trump could not have possibly done anything that rose to the level of impeachment by pressuring a foreign government to help him win an election because he believed it was in within the national interest for him to win that election. <laughs> I fucking love Golden. that argument. That's amazing. Golden. That is amazing. So who... We immortalized that argument. <laughs> so who could possibly rise to the level of a d-bag well you know i know that in our last segment i was talking about how uh, uh michael is a very clever dude but it turns out not all michaels are <laughs> uh created equal mm, um because our d-bag this week is a uh, daily wire host michael knowles michael knowles all right come on down what did Mikey this Mikey Noe, do? come on down. Michael Noe. <laughs> no, Mikey Noe. Mikey, Mikey Noe. Noe. 
I try to I try to find a way to bastardize everybody's name yeah, for, for these segments. And minimize And like way. sometimes it like I had to think about that one for a sec. Like, <laughs> you know, Mikey No, I guess yeah, Mikey Noe. Okay. Mikey Noe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh Michael Knowles, which I'm sure he's been on the show before, was uh talking about the fact that apparently um American society has started to do a little bit of a uh, backtrack into conservatism. And he said that according to the uh, Gallup poll, they are now at the same level of conservatism as they were in 2012. Um, which, I mean, we have been noticing that we mm-hmm. have been, well, we've been noticing that like, especially religious right-wing groups mm-hmm. have been become more, have, have been becoming more adamant about like anti-gay stuff and anti-trans stuff than they were even a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So we have definitely been noticing that. Uh, But for him, that's not enough. He said, quote, I do not want America to be as socially conservative as 2012. I want our civilization to be as socially conservative as they were in 1220. I don't even want the 1950s. I don't even want the 1880s. I want 1220. That would be a good spot to land on. At the very least... I think we ought to be as conservative as we were before all the modern ideology corroded our civilization. That's amazing. He's talking about the Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about the he Enlightenment. He doesn't want the fucking Enlightenment. I don't want all those, all those, uh, you know, compass using, uh, star knowing, uh, astronomers deciding my ideology. <laughs> See, here's the thing, like. The reason why this is a Dershowitz bag is because it flies in the face of everything that modern conservatives try to argue. Yeah. Like they try to argue that the, their whole thing is about freedom on every level, mm-hmm. economic freedom and the freedom to be as, you know, whatever as you want to be as, uh, as long as you're, you know, not being gay or trans or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of just very, th- this freedom this wasn't a concept the until the enlightenment. Enlightenment yeah, invented freedom. Wasn't freedom. A concept. <laughs> and also, like in this segment, he he even goes after classical liberalism, which is <laughs> neoliberalism, yeah. which is literally all that the Republican Party talks about. Yeah. So he doesn't even want capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't even want cap capitalism is too liberal for him. Yeah. He wants feudalism. He wants us to go back to fucking feudalism. <laughs> I like, love the idea that when you're when you self-recognize that your ideology is from the dark ages and just lean into it yeah you know the worst time the worst era (laughs) it's literally called the dark ages the dark ages (laughs) like and i love that he's not he's saying you know i don't want to go back to the 1950s because repealing the civil rights act and being a bunch of racist assholes that's not enough for me not enough not enough absolutely Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's just not enough All right. I want to go back to a time before the concept of uh, slavery being immoral, Mm -hmm. before that was a thing. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to a time before uh, women had any rights, like when they were literally treated as property. Mm -hmm. All people were treated as property. It was like anybody who wasn't a nobleman. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, he doesn't he doesn't even want capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like if that's what you're saying, if you want the social organization of 1220 mm-hmm. you don't want capitalism yeah all right you don't want capitalism uh you are a feudalist you are a complete mm-hmm. fucking feudalist and i'd like to point something else out like he said this in a studio in front of a camera speaking into a microphone all things hmm. that if you took back and showed people from 1220 you'd be burned as a witch because they believed in witches yeah yeah these people are constantly worried about witch hunts let's send them back to a time when there's actual fucking witch hunts (laughs) (laughs) oh my god what what a giveaway like this is in this in this particular case he is either telling you who he is or he is telling you how fucking stupid he is yeah like if if he's actually telling you what he is then like anybody that calls himself a capitalist needs to immediately just like never listen to a word he says again. All right. Because again, this guy is saying he wants to go back to feudalism. Mm -hmm. Like Adam Smith, fun fact, 
did not exist. Yeah. <laughs> in, in 1220. There was no the invisible concept... hand of the market. It was just the actual hand of your, you know, feudal enslaver actually hitting you. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I, I don't know if he was just trying to be clever with like, oh, look, I'm, yeah, I'm switching the name the back and forth. But like, I don't even necessarily think that that is what he was saying. Because he even he said, like, I don't down. even want yeah. us to go back to 1950s. Yeah. Yep. Like, and he's specifically saying all of this modern ideology corroded our society. He's talking about the Enlightenment yeah. that gave us scientific advancements that led mm-hmm. to you being able to speak your own bullshit. Yeah. All right? It, it, it led to the idea... Of freedom of speech, which means that anybody, no matter how stupid they are, can say whatever the hell they want. All right. If we actually went back to that time, you wouldn't be allowed to talk. Yeah. All right. You would be burned at a stake and then also not allowed to talk. (laughs) You'd be burned at the stake for being a witch. You wouldn't be allowed to talk because there's no freedom of speech. Like, I just, man. Man, what a giveaway. <laughs> what what an a idiot. giveaway. So congratulations to Mikey Noli for being this week's D-Bag. So now we'll end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that after uh, having to uh, file an extension because I was having trouble obtaining some documents, mm. my taxes are done. Oh, thank goodness. What a feeling. I know I'm I'm late and it was more complicated this year because we uh we we sold a house and mm-hmm. we bought a house and there was a major markup because of the uh well not markup. It was a we it was a major um we made a major profit because of it mm. because of how the housing market was. Um and so our taxes were complicated and we got them done uh after firing fi- filing an extension. So that is off my shoulders, out of my mind. Oh. Fuck taxes. I bet that feels good. Dude, every time tax season comes around, I'm like, you know, these libertarians have uh, have something to say. <laughs> and well, then I'm like, I mean, wait, no, because I won't be able to pay for all the things that I love if I don't pay my taxes. Well, but also, I mean, you we did a segment. Mm-hmm. Remember where where like literally the only reason why it's so complicated is because yes. the the very companies mm-hmm. that we file our taxes through they lobbied the government to make it complicated so they can stay in business mm-hmm. so like so yeah you you could be against it for libertarian reasons but the libertarian reasons shouldn't be anti tax it should mm-hmm. be anti these fucking corporations <laughs> so what so what's we're your doing another Michael? segment <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my highlight, highlight is, Michael? I think, perspective. So we have, um, what, it's, uh, yeah, so my anniversary is this coming weekend, which is super exciting, and I nice. remembered it. And um, at the, <laughs> <laughs> and I also have a friend who's coming into town from Colorado. He and his girlfriend are visiting, and that's going to be super freaking fun, and I can't wait to see them. It's going to be awesome. And so now, thank you to all the people that make this show possible. So thank you to our amazing patrons, Jerry DeViller, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen for the contributions that help make this show go. Uh, if you want to listen to more of The Perspectrum, you can go to our YouTube page and see us uh, in our videos. You can find us uh, on YouTube. Uh, just search The Perspectrum. And thank you to our incredible editor, Kayla, for all they do to make this show possible. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to The Perspectrum. And you'll hear from us again next week.